Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer, engineer, and plug-in developer Dan Korneff. First of all, no one's really thinking about touring, but when we get back up to speed with that, I think you're going to find it's going to be a lot more expensive for everybody, and not for the reasons you think. First of all, the foreign artist visa in the United States is about to go up 50%. Now, this was kind of under the radar, but in 2016, it was raised 42% from $325 to $465 per person. Now it's going to go up another 50% to $705 per person. What that means is a four-piece band plus a road manager trying to tour the United States, just to even get in the country, it's going to cost them more than $3,500. So what that's going to mean is it's going to be too expensive to tour the United States for a mid-level UK or EU act. Here's the downside, though. This is going to come back on artists trying to tour the UK and Europe because you're going to see some retaliation about this. We've already seen a rise in their visa prices, and it's going to get a lot tougher before it gets better. So it's true, we're a ways away from getting back to touring. But when that happens again, the costs are going to be much higher than they've been in the past. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free Mixing Techniques mini-course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDFs on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free dash resources. Now here's something that we don't really want to see happen, but it's going to happen anyway. Immersive audio is just starting to get off the ground. And for the most part, that's been led so far by Dolby Atmos. We've talked about that here in the past. However, there's a new entrant. It's Sony. And Sony has what they call 360 Reality Audio, which is sometimes abbreviated with 360RA. Now, there are some differences. For instance, Atmos is a 7.1.4 system, basically meaning there's seven speakers that are around the listening position, there's one subwoofer, and there are four speakers in the air, four height speakers. 360RA is a little bit different. We have left, center, right across the front, another five speakers around you, and then there are five speakers in the air. So it's completely different. Now that being said, it doesn't much matter if you don't have any kind of material to play for people. But Sony's been hard at work at that, too, because there's a thousand songs that are now available from Pharrell, Dua Lipa, Liam Gallagher, David Bowie, Mark Ronson, and a whole lot of others. You can find this in exactly the same place that you can find Dolby Atmos files. That means Amazon Music HD, Deezer, and Tidal. So details are kind of slim on exactly what you need to do this. That being said... Sony does have a piece of software for you that pretty much does everything. It's called the 360 Reality Audio Architect Software Suite, and that includes mixing, encoding, decoding, and rendering tools. 
It spits it all out on an MPEG H format that supports up to 64 speaker channels. Now, one of the reasons why I think that Sony might win if this war ever gets to the point where consumers buy in. First of all, Sony makes really good audio hardware. They've already shown that they have some dedicated speakers primarily made for this. Now, those are prototypes, but apparently there's going to be some new speakers just for the immersive format. These are all based on the Bluetooth 2.0 audio spec, so they're all high res. The good thing about Bluetooth 2.0 is the fact that there won't be any wires. That was one of the big points when it came to 5.1 and 7.1 audio way back when, where he had cables all over the living room, and that was definitely something that didn't fly with the wife. The other thing about 360RA is that it's made specifically for headphones. And you know, 85% of people listen on headphones or earbuds these days. So if this could translate really well to headphones and then translate again to speakers in the living room, we may have something here. Now we're quite a ways away from this actually catching on. But that being said, look out for this. There's a lot more details yet to come out. There's a lot of things that we don't know about it. But I think that's going to happen really fast here now that they've made the announcement that there really is product out there that you can listen to. My guest this week is producer, mixer, and engineer Dan Korneff, who has not only worked with prominent names like Breaking Benjamin, Paramore, Papa Roach, Lamb of God, and My Chemical Romance, but has developed some of the coolest audio plugins available. Dan not only knows how to expertly use his audio gear, but he also knows what makes it all tick inside as well, being very hands-on when it comes to modifying consoles, vintage outboard gear, and microphones. That led Dan to create his first plugin called the Pawn Shop Comp, which is a combination of vintage tube and FET compressors blended together to create something totally unique. His latest plugin is a talkback limiter that faithfully emulates the sound of the famed SSL talkback mic circuit made famous by Phil Collins, but it has a lot more versatility. During the interview, we talked about initially getting into DIY gear, the idea behind Dan's plugins, using a console for mixing, having a studio dog, his favorite mixing and production tricks, and much more. I spoke with Dan via Zoom from his studio in New York. Tell me about how you got started in the business. Well, I was a drummer. I started out as a drummer. You know, my, my parents uh, got a divorce, and the first thing you do is you pick up a heavy metal record, and then your life changes, you know, and uh, started playing drums and uh, recorded a demo, and it was terrible. Went to this guy, supposed to be, you know, a, a local guy that had some credits, and and it was the worst thing ever. I said, dude, I can do better than this. And uh, so I read some books and, and went to Sam Ash, bought some gear. And that was it. I was I was hooked. You were hooked. But then what happened? Did you intern anywhere? Yes. So uh, that was probably when I was about 14 or 15. And so I, I had a good head start on some people as far as recording goes. And, uh, you know, my life was, was going on a different path though. I, w I was uh, studying to be a civil engineer. So, uh, you know, I had a job, I was designing streets and, and stoplights and uh, it was great. It just, it wasn't for me though. 
So I was like, okay, let's, let's look at, you know, let's, let's try to do music. You know, I'm, I'm 19, whatever. Let's, let me, this is the time. If I'm going to do music, let's, let's do it. And uh, I told my parents, I'm like, yeah, I want to do music. And they're like, yeah, that's great. But you still have to go to college for something. You know, you can't just do whatever you want. And, and so I found a music school called Five Towns College uh, on Long Island and uh, went there. And actually, that's how I got it introduced to you was uh, we used one of your mixing books as a study guide for our program. Went to school there. And one of my teachers, Luke Delalio, um, just took me under his wing. Like the second that I got there, introduced me to your book showed me everything and, and hooked me up with an internship at a place called Water Music in Hoboken, New Jersey. And uh, that was a beautiful studio, a huge Neve console. My, my first session in, uh, guitar player from the Black Crows is there. And, and just my life is flashing before my eyes. Like, is this real? This is actually happening. And, and But uh, yeah, but I got yelled at a lot and uh, learned a lot during that internship. <laughs> How long was that? Well, I started interning there to, well, let's see here, about nine, 99 to 2001. So about, about a year and a half of, of internship. Then what happened? They asked me to be a house engineer there. So I, I couldn't deny it. I was like, this is, this is my end. You know, it's a great studio right outside of New York City. Great gear, great people coming through. And, um, and so I started as the house engineer there. What kind of interesting sessions did you do as a house engineer? Well, you know, as the house engineer, you assisted on everything that came through. You know, you were responsible for all of that stuff. And I had met so many people doing that. Uh, one of the first sessions ever being in that studio was Government Mule and you know, as a kid listening to heavy metal, I had no idea who they were. I had no idea. Just I'm making friends with these guys. They got huge Leslie cabinets and tons of guitars and, you know, making friends with these guys and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, a session right after that was Lou Giordano, who had done, you know, all the live records. And, and he was like a hero of mine. And just being in the same room with him and, and trying not to fanboy <laughs> too hard. <laughs> But it was sessions like that, you know, a lot of people doing stuff. And, and ultimately where I met um, my music partner, David Bendeth, he was um, A&R at RCA. And he was like right on the verge of, you know, moving from A&R to producer. And he would do sessions there and, and, you know, just so many musical connections there. When did you decide to go out on your own? Well, that was, uh, that was thanks to Bendeth. It was you know, kind of working at the studio and he was on his way, you know, out of A&R and into producing. And he was like, why, why don't you come with me to the hit factory? Let's go mix a record. I said, we can do that. He's like, yeah, you don't have to work here. Just let's go make a record. <laughs> and that was it. I was out. And uh, that was, that was basically it. That was like the launching pad to doing my own thing. How long did it take you before you felt that yeah, you know, I got this. Because everybody goes through that where you're experimenting at first and then it takes a while till you get that confidence up where you go, okay, I, I, now I feel good. I feel good about doing this today. I think that there is um, a reverse bell curve when it comes to that. Because when I first started, I was really cocky. 
I was like, I'm the, I'm the best engineer and producer that ever existed ever. And, you know, it started out that way. And then I got my ass beat for probably four or five, six years, you know, by Chris Lord Algae and, and all these guys, you know, just losing mixes to all these people. And, uh, you know, it was, it was at that point that I'm like, wow, I really, I really need to buckle down and, and I am not the best, but I feel like it, it probably took, yeah, probably five or six years of being in the, in the, uh, under that pressure to really come through and, and be confident in my work. Was there something that you did in particular that took you to another level? Hmm. That's, that is a good question. I think that a lot of it has to do with chance and the thing that the thing that took me to the next level was, was, was engineering a, a, a breaking Benjamin record that, that had went platinum, you know, it was like that credit that uh, from the industry that was like, Oh, well now you're, you were here and now you're at this level now. And that was, you know, that was a huge thing for me. And um, I don't really, I guess I accredited it to just getting my butt beat a lot. And then eventually like it just, it all clicked. Yeah. We all have had our butts beaten, (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) especially, especially by the same people. Right. There's guys that are huge and they, they do a great job and, you know, you're just, you're just down there trying to make a name for yourself and then do your own thing. Yeah. And credits, they play a bigger part in the industry than many people think, especially when you're starting, I think, even though you're, you're aware of them, but you're not aware of the reason why they're important. Right. I agree. And, uh, you know, sometimes it, it works out in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. You know, when you're first starting out, I feel like uh, a lot of people play the name game. You know, they they ha- they see a, a huge mixer name and they're like, oh, this is, we're just going to use that guy anyway. You know, he's got the name and they'll, they'll pass you up for something. Or the opposite way, so eventually you become that guy and someone who has a great mix is, is getting passed up because they don't have the name. It's, uh, it's a weird business. So it seems like you have a pretty strong background in electronics. How did that come about? Well... That came about from, uh, from being poor and not having any money and being in school. And you really want all that gear. I got like gear envy very quick. I, I love the knobs and the meters and all this stuff. And, you know, when you're first coming up, you have nothing. So when I went to college, my parents didn't know that tuition in, in, uh, included a meal plan. So they would give me, you know, a couple bucks here and there to, for food. And I would take that and I put it away and I would buy gear and I couldn't get the stuff that I wanted. And uh, I'd always been like a hands-on kind of guy. And I found a book uh, about how to build an LA2. And that was like the jumping board into like electronics and DIY. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I never built that compressor. It was way over my head. But that got me interested in, in electronics and, and doing stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that kind of moved me forward into just start simple, you know, instead of this huge thing, just build a guitar pedal. It's got 10 components on it. Just do it and see what happens. And that's how I started with, with all the electronic stuff was that just one guitar pedal. You know, it's funny because when I first started, I was a guitar player and I wanted to find out where the electrons went from the guitar into the amplifier and how it all worked. So even when I was young, in high school, I was studying electronics books mm. and then went to college for it to, to understand. And the problem was I focused on that 
entirely. I, you know, computers, uh, I don't care about that. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I want to know analog. I want to know how this all works. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a funny thing. It does get to you. I, you know, the other thing is I remember building direct boxes before there was such a thing. And, no kidding. And then se- selling them for like 50 bucks, not understanding, you know, the business aspect of it. I could have got four times as much probably. But everybody was going crazy. Oh, direct box. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're a nerd. <laughs> Certified nerd. Well, it used to be, you know, less so these days, I have to say. But I appreciate it in people like you, to be honest with you. When I, I see somebody that it's like, oh, yeah, I, I know what he's going through or, or went through because kind of been there. You've been there and done it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get to the plugins then. Like I was telling you, I really like both your plugins, the Pawn Shop Comp and the Talkback Limiter. And one of the reasons why is they have character. I hate plugins that are neutral, that just kind of do what they're supposed to do, but that's it. Yours has real character and, and very variable as well. How did you get into doing plugins? Well, it's just another one of those things I can't help from tinkering. And um, I, I try to, to build stuff that makes my life easier. So with the electronics, it was you know building gear that would make my life better. And then it came to plugins. Um, it started probably about five years ago or so. It was very new to me. I got interested in, in programming and just doing basic non-audio programming, C++ from the ground up. And uh, I kind of gave myself a little background in that. And then as that progressed, I was like, you know what? Just like you said, you know, a lot of these plugins don't have character. There's no vibe. Uh, they're very basic. And a lot of the ones that had, you know, quote unquote, uh, vibe to them, uh, didn't seem right to me. Every, it was kind of off. And uh, um, so I said, well, let me, let me give it a shot. Let me try some math and, <laughs> and some stuff and, and see if it works any better. And, um, you know, I, I found myself, the pawn shop comp I made about three years ago, just for myself. And I ended up having uh, about 20 or 30 of them on a session. And then finding myself like trying, because I felt terrible that I'm using just my own stuff. Like, let me try another compression. Let me try something else. And eventually just coming back to it. I'm like, you know what? If I like it this much, I think other people are going to like it too. You know, so then I started that company to, to release them. That, you know, that was it. The motivation was just a lot of plugins don't have that vibe. They're too clean. And there's nothing clean. How did the name come about? So the Pawn Shop Comp, that was an actual inspiration from when I was a kid, I would go to pawn shops and I would buy uh, surplus audio gear for my studio. So I would unknowingly be buying this, these ham radio limiters and preamps and things that just had, you know, that were hand built that had knobs and with no labels on them and things that just did something. I had no idea what they did. Um, and I, I had a compressor. It was a tube limiter for a ham radio um, that just had a sound to it. And, um, I just, I couldn't find anything else like that. And it was dirty and gritty. And, and, you know, that was, that was the true inspiration for that plugin. What I especially like about it is what's under the hood. When you can go in and change the sound of the tubes, change the tube emulation, change the resistor emulation, the FET, all that is so cool that you can go in there and see it change. And so, I mean, that's a big part of it too, to me, where 
you know, it's one thing if you can switch something and it sounds different. If you can see it, there's that extra, well, it must be good if it changed, you know? Right. Exactly. And, and that was, that was sort of the other motivation is, is that not only do the plugins have to sound good, but I wanted to uh, sort of bring that DIY aspect to younger kids. You know, a lot of these kids, they're not buying compressors and, and stuff and, and they're not popping open the lid and they're not shocking themselves and they're, they're not doing all the fun stuff. You know, they have a computer, a laptop with a microphone and they're plugging it into an interface and they don't have that environment to pop open a lid and see what's going on in there. And, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to bring that vibe to, uh, to the modern era, <laughs> if yeah. that's even possible. Talkback limiter, I found really interesting, and I, I loved it. I, the sound on drums, especially snare, is fantastic, I, I have to say. One of the things that happened to me personally, I can remember being in a session and wanting to get, not necessarily the Phil Collins sound, but the, there was a record made by Power Station. I can't remember what it was. There's a big drum sound in the beginning, and I was looking for that sound. Couldn't get it no matter what. And mm. then... While the drummer was playing, somebody hit the listen button, and it was like, that's it. There it is. That's the sound. How do we get it? And we never could. Mm -hmm. And of course, yeah. now I know the story of how and why, but it was like I searched for that sound over and over, never could get it, and now here we go with the talkback limiter. So as soon as I heard that, it was like, oh, there it is. It 30 years too late, but <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> it's very cool. Now you can, and it's, it's easy to get, you know, and, and you know what, a lot of people, as many uh, people that know about the story there, there are a lot of people that don't know the story yeah. and they don't know the history behind it. And, and uh, you know, it's like one of those breaking the rules kind of things. You know what I mean? It was, they're using something for something it wasn't meant for. And, and it just sounded great. Your plugins are also priced very reasonably as well. Thank you. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying you know, it's one of those things where you don't want to price yourself out of the market. You know, universal audio plugins are three, four hundred bucks. It's a lot of money. And then you also don't want to price yourself at ten or fifteen dollars. You know, I, I put a lot of, of work into them and I try to include that into the price and, and also at the same time, you know, not not try to gouge people. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, well done on that. I see that you're still using a console. Is that just yeah. for tracking or are you mixing on it as well? Oh, I, I am so old school when it comes to my processes. Um, I have, I'm sitting here. This is my, I have an SSL, uh, G series console, uh, tons of, of outboard gear behind me. That's, that's just my process. Uh, I still use the old school VCA automation. Um, you know, that's, that's what I do. I love it. Wow. You're one of the few that I know that still uses console automation because most everybody does it in the box these days. Everyone's doing it in the box. And, and honestly, um, a lot of bigger guys, some of my heroes that are moving into the box, you know, they're putting out some of their worst mixes. You know what I mean? I, I don't think that they're as good. And for me, when I first started, you know, I started on tape and I moved to a computer and I was all about being in the box. So I kind of learned a lot about being in the box. And then, you know, I kind of took a, a turn the other way and I said, in the box is fun, but to me, the analog stuff sounded better. And uh, not only did it sound better, but it was more fun to play with. You know, sitting there with a mouse and just clicking buttons, is it's not fun to me. You know, I can reach up on the console and I can turn something. I can get up and turn around and tweak an EQ. You know, so sometimes it's, it's about me too, you know. You got to be selfish sometimes. 
Yeah, the, I mean, the only problem with that I think we all have is that when you're asked to recall something, you know, we've all been there where you try to recall it on analog gear and it doesn't sound the same when you do it the next time. You want to pull your hair out because you're looking, you're going, this should, I'm matching everything, what, what happened? Yeah, I mean, as far as recalls go, my, a lot of my outboard stuff and my console doesn't change very much. The recalls come back pretty quick, but I print a lot of stems too. So if someone wants something simple changed, I will, I'll change it in the stems and fly it into the main mix. Uh, or if they want something changed, changed drastically, I mean, it doesn't matter if the recall comes back right because they want something changed anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I deal with it. You know, it's very different than opening up a computer and everything is the same and it sounds the same. You know, you don't have that luxury. That's fine. I'll deal with it. I'm happy to see you have a studio dog. <laughs> yeah, little Lily. She's my favorite. Comes with me all the time. Today is like one of the only days that she's not at the studio. I wish she was here. Do you have a pet too, a studio pet? Uh, yeah, I have two cats actually that like to sit and watch when I mix. Yeah, it changes the whole vibe of the room, you know, just having a little pet there for everyone to hang out with. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favorite mixing trick? Do I have a favorite mixing trick? Something that you seem to be using every time you do it. Yeah, uh, I double compress my mix bus. I have uh, the console bus compressor on the SSL, and then that goes out into Pultac EQs and then to another set of SSL bus compressor and then back to my master fader. So everything gets compressed and I'm compressing a lot. I'm, I'm not gentle with it. It's 15, 20 dB gain reduction on my bus easily. Wow. I just go for it. Your mixes are hot then. Oh yeah. <laughs> very, very hot. But you know, I kind of, I stole that from, from Andy Wallace. Um, you know, he, he mixed a song for me and I went to the session and, you know, just kind of looking at it like, wow, I mean, is, he's pushing 15 dB of, of, you know, 80 hertz on the bass and, and he's got 20 dB gain reduction on the bus. And I was like, well, that's the sound that I like. I'm going to do that. And, and I did. And it's a different world for me. He's a master for sure. And it's one of those things where he's a under the radar master mm. for the most part. That's true. You know, he didn't quite hit the spotlight like CLA or those guys, but uh, he he's the best. And, you know, he's a, well, there's like a, a top three for me, but he's, he's up there. Yeah. Maybe number two. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we talked about your mixing trick, which I like a lot, by the way. <laughs> Tell me about a production trick that you have. Hmm. Producing records is a different animal. You know, you have all these different egos and people in a room with, with different things you have to manage. Um, production tricks as, as far as working with bands, man, that's a tough one. Instead of like spearheading people, I always try the more diplomatic way of, yeah, that's great. Let's, let's try this though. You know, just let them do what they want to do because a lot of bands are not open-minded to change or something is different and it's more like well that's great all right we got it now let's try this and do nine times out of ten you a b and they're like oh yeah this other one's better and you know that's that's one of my favorite tricks just be diplomatic be nice yeah see one of the things about being a player is you understand that because you have that mentality it's like well you know don't tell me what to do because i'm the player i know what to do although you don't but you know <laughs> that's 
that's the the general vibe so i I remember that too it's like i I remember when people would force me to do something and i would feel like it was forced so the fun went out of it right away you know you can feel that that's true and the studio should be fun everything should be fun you're making music you're you're making a feeling that people can listen to over and over again like it's you got to enjoy it when you produce something do you track it as well I do. Yeah. I end up doing a lot of stuff, uh, pretty much everything along the way. I've had a bunch of great assistants at my studio. Um, you know, at at a certain time in your life, you get really jammed and and you're making two or three records at one time. And it's a lot of records to make for one person. (laughs) So you can't do it all. But, uh, you know, recently, I guess the past four or five years, um, it's just, just been me. I stopped doing that. I found that I couldn't do a great job at both. There are lots of people that can. I'm not one of them. So I understood, well, at least for tracking, I'm going to get somebody in. Or for overdubs, I can take that, and, you know, not a problem. Right. But uh, I would usually get somebody, you know, really good in the, the track, and then I'd hopefully learn something at the same time, you know? That's very true, yeah. Absolutely. And then you can focus on what you're good at or what you want to focus on. You know, maybe you don't want to focus on... Uh, placing a mic on a snare drum. Maybe you want to focus on the groove and, you know, separate yourself from that. It's a good idea. Coming back to your plugins and website and everything, the blog that you have is awesome. Dude, my partner, Luke, is the best. He, I learned a lot of stuff from him. And when we started putting this all together, he really gave me the idea of, of making it more of like, you know, let's introduce these younger kids to like uh, the lifestyle that we had, the music lifestyle. And and you see a lot of our blogs are not, um, it's not, you know, put your EQ here and, and turn this here. You know, some of them may be, but most of them are more about the general idea of of being in a studio, which, uh, which I think is important. And he nails it. He really nails it. He certainly does. The explanations are so crystal clear and the analogies are so good as well. It's like, wow, this is dynamite. Send him my regards with that because he did a great job. And he was, he's a natural born teacher and, you know, that's what he does. And, uh, at a certain point I kind of have to step out of the way and say, well, he's can do it way better than I can. And he's who I learned from. So what better person to, you know, to put up front like that. Yeah. How has COVID changed things for you? Oh my God. It's changed everything. Everything, uh, is different. My studio is on Long Island and Long Island was hit hard, probably one of the worst in the country. And everything, it almost seems like the music business and live music, everything is is on pause. Uh, you would think that a lot of people are like in the studio and making records now that they have this time, but man, people do not want to get next to each other, which is fine. I understand. And a lot of people need to make income. So a lot of bands are doing live streams and, and things like that uh, and not necessarily recording because they have no way to perform it to support their record. Uh, so that's kind of out. Um, a lot of my time recently has been in uh, mixing, of course, because no one has to be in the room with you for mixing and, you know, spending time with my family. You know, like you, you know how it is. You work 16 hour days for 20 years straight. All of a sudden a pandemic comes and you're like, man, this is, this is a vacation. I'm going to take this time and, 
you're not that I've taken a break and I've spent 10 hours a day now making plugins yeah. <laughs> instead of mixing records. Yeah. Uh, I always find something to do. I always have to scratch some kind of itch. I mean, that's how it's changed for me, but uh, you make the best of it. You know, it's different out here in California. The studios, the big studios have been busy right through the pandemic. Even when we had a lockdown and they weren't supposed to be open, they were open through the back door. And I've talked to people who've done sessions. Some have told me they went into sessions where everybody observed social distancing, having a, a mask and everything, and others where none of that applied. What I've heard from studio managers is, you know, we tried to enforce it for a couple of days and then we gave up. Yeah, a lot of people don't want to follow it. You know, luckily in New York, people take it seriously. Everyone's got a mask on. You, can go, you can't go anywhere without a mask or someone will beat you up. <laughs> I wish it were like that here. Yeah, I mean, who knows if it's actually helping or not. You know, studies say maybe it is, and that's fine with it. It's not hurting me to wear one. But I feel like once uh, a lot of other areas are, get hit as hard as Long Island did, they're, they're going to think about it twice. You know, they're going to they're gonna put that mask on. COVID aside, where do you think the business is going? I mean, do, do you see a trend? And, and again, it's hard to say because now we're in such flux. But before all this happened, were you seeing a trend in the business? Well, you know, I feel like we're kind of stuck at the moment. Uh, you know, there's always going to be some kind of, of pop music that you, uh, music lovers are going to consider to be mindless and that's, that's always going to exist and music is always going to change. But I feel like the world that I live in uh, making rock music, we're kind of stuck. And, um, you know, people are trying to throw in loops and electronic stuff and, and trying to push it a little more pop. And they're making this, this terrible, I don't even know what you would call it. It's just, it's not good. Um, and, and I'm not really sure where it's going to go from here. You know, we, we need that one artist to stand up or maybe we need someone to invent a new instrument. You know, <laughs> maybe we need the new electric guitar or a new way of playing it. I, I'm not really sure. The evolution of rock seems to have stopped. And it's been like that for a while. Uh, you know, maybe it's five, six, seven years. It feels like to me where, you know, nothing has really changed. We haven't gone forward. Maybe it's there's not a big new artist that pushes things forward. Not sure. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure either. It's just, it's a tough period to be in. And, uh, you know, with that in mind, you know, seeing how things are going now and, and seeing how tough it's going to be for bands, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of bands will, will call it quits. You know, maybe they can't make it through the pandemic. Who knows? Maybe there's going to be a new crop of people tinkering with stuff right now. That's, that's going to change the way music is. But I just saw a survey this morning and I can't remember the exact figure, but it was from the UK and it was something like 65 or 85% of musicians thought they were going to quit the business because of the pandemic. They couldn't go forward. It was a huge amount. You know, I can't remember what it was exactly, but that's pretty sad. Part of it is, well, if you, you can't make any money and you expect to make some, you have to do something else. So I can see that. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, if you expect to make money out of this business, maybe, <laughs> maybe you're in the wrong business too. <laughs> yeah. yeah there there are a handful of people that are getting very rich and a lot of other people that are you know living paycheck to paycheck and and making their way yeah it's a strange business last question dan what's the best piece of business advice that 
maybe you learned along the way or someone imparted to you? The best piece of advice is it's always, always do your best and always try, you know, make an effort to do something. And by that, I mean, you know, if you are, if you have a landscaping company, you're going to make flyers and you're going to go to people's doors or you're going to advertise mowing lawns and, and plowing uh, snow and all these things. And in the music business, you're going to do the same thing. Go out there, make the connections, uh, know your craft, study music and study sound, uh, make interesting records, you know, do everything that you can to, to get ahead. And, and I think that that's, that's the best advice that I've gotten. You can find out more about Dan at dancorneff.com. That's dancorneff, K-O-R-N-E-F-F, all one word, dot com. You can also find out more about his plugins at corneffaudio.com, K-O-R-N-E-F-F, audio, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.